Well, open your Bible to the table of contents. No, I'm not kidding. Open your Bible to the table of contents. I'm going to make this fast and easy for all of us. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. And instead of spending the first few minutes fiddling around and remembering the song, we're just going to look at the page number where the book of Jonah is, and I'll meet you in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Machanaim, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Anyway, you know this, you know those books very well. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the whole book of Jonah today. This is my... Are you laughing with me or at me? Um, this is my uh, last uh, opportunity to kind of preach what's on my heart before we begin the Gospel of Mark next week. And you might say, why Jonah? The reason I want us to look at Jonah is the unique perspective of the mercy of God that this book presents in bright and vivid color. I think we so often accent God's grace, which is God giving us what we don't deserve and forget so often his mercy, which is him withholding what we do deserve. And I found myself uniquely fresh, refreshed in Jonah and thought, I just want to study it a little bit more deeply and preach it this morning. This is a children's story for adults. Jonah, rightly understood, is not rated G. And when we say it is rated R, it's not on the Hollywood standard. It is restricted by those who understand the wrath of God, the judgment that's deserved on every sinner, and the kindness that his mercy displays to us. Jonah chapter 1. Let's just highlight one verse and then we'll go through the book together. Verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. There is one indistinguishable, irreconcilable, indispensable feature that separates the true child of God from the naysayers of the Christian faith. And that feature is the simple belief in the miraculous nature of the events of the Bible. If you're a Bible-believing saint, you believe in the supernatural events that God's Word records. The Bible is full of miracles, of God suspending the normal, predictable laws of nature that He created for divine purposes, and He suspends those laws for His own glory. Think of what we Bible trusters believe, truly believe, actually, really, honestly hold happened, that the world was made by God speaking, that the earth opened up under a group of disobedient people and swallowed them up in a deadly sinkhole, that a sea was parted to allow several million Jews to walk through, and that same sea collapsed on the entire Egyptian army, that fire came from heaven and instantly burned up a water-drenched sacrifice that an axe head floated from the bottom of a river, that a boy's lunch fed 15,000, that water was walked upon by our Lord. By we believe that the blind under his hand received sight, that the deaf were given hearing, and that dead people rose by his hand. We could go on and on for hours. Well, the book of Jonah is full of miraculous events. It's what's really made the book of Jonah the object of such ridicule from liberal scholarship. In the book of Jonah, you find a supernaturally created storm, the instant subsiding of that same storm, the use of a blind lot, like casting dice, to select Jonah as the guilty man on board. You find a big fish appearing at the perfect and right time, Jonah living in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. The fish vomiting Jonah at the right place on land. The instant growth of a tree-sized shade-bearing plant overnight. And the repentance of half a million people at one time. And frankly, that's just too much for many people to believe happened. If you don't believe in miracles, you will be repulsed by the book of Jonah. Jonah. 
but to discover the meaning that really is woven through this amazing book. We need to take it all at one shot. And we're going to take it seriously. We're going to take it at face value, and we're going to take face value, and we're going to take it at as historical fact. Frankly, if you take this book seriously, the characteristic you discover about God is entirely unexpected. This book is the signature of God's mercy in the Older Testament. So I want to paddle, pardon the pun, paddle our way through this book and discover with you four unexpected recipients of God's mercy. Four unexpected recipients or groups of people sometimes, unexpected recipients of God's mercy. The first recipient are wicked sinners. Wicked sinners. Look at verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This was the first inner, the opening scene of God telling the prophet Jonah to go and preach a message. But this must have been a shock to Jonah. Jonah's flock was Israel. Jonah's flock was the northern tribes. Jonah's flock was the people of God. Jonah's flock were the Jews. And the role of most prophets, as you know, in the Old Testament was to preach to the people of Israel to call them to repentance so that the foreign nations such as Assyria, the capital city of which was Nineveh, would be held back by God as the judge of Israel. They were the enemies. And for good reason. The Assyrians were brutal, cruel, wicked people. Indescribably sinister, heartless, inhumane. And knowing their sinfulness fueled Jonah to want them to experience the judgment of God, not one of his latest sermons. Another prophet to Nineveh, 100 years later, was Nahum. Listen to just four of the many verses in which he describes Nineveh. Nahum 3, 1, just listen. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain. A mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. This was a demonic place, a wicked place. The Assyrians were not only cruel, their kings were exceptionally cruel, famously or infamously, I should say, cruel, proud of their cruelty, their horrors, and they went to great lengths to brag about how cruel and brutal and inhumane they were. That was their signature. Especially over the nations that they had conquered. They would often erect giant cylinders, just round towers that were hollow on the inside obelisks on which they would carve and chisel pictures of the terrors for people to look at and remember both in Assyria and those who would pass through. I did quite a bit of study on ancient Assyria this week and I can only tell you that it is unspeakable and beyond the propriety of the pulpit for me to tell you of many of the atrocities way too graphic to mention in a sermon. Here are just a few I can These were the Assyrians. These were the Ninevites. They would dismember people alive and leave one hand attached so they could shake that hand before the person died. They would decapitate prisoners and have their heads 
put on poles carried by their best friends in parades. They would stretch live people out by ropes and then skin them alive. They would burn children alive while their parents were forced to watch. They would build hollow walls and entomb people so they could just starve to death and die in those walls. I'll read you a a piece from George Rue's book on ancient Iraq. It's in the Penguin History Series. It is exceptional reading and hard reading. I read this back when I was in college taking an ancient Near Eastern history course and marked this passage then and it still makes my heart sink. Rue writes this. The Assyrians had every, or the enemies of the Assyrians had every reason to tremble for Ashurnazirpal was preceded by a well-deserved reputation for cruelty. Humanitarian concepts in warfare were unknown in those days and a few spectacular examples duly recorded and displayed in writing and in pictures in various places were no doubt necessary to inspire respect and enforce obedience. All conquerors in antiquity practiced a policy of terror at some level and the Assyrians were no exception. But Ashurnazirpal, he was about 150 years before Jonah, surpassed them all. Not only were the rebellious or recalcitrant rulers put to death, but they flayed, skinned uh, uh, people alive, and spread their skin over the walls of the city. Unarmed prisoners and innocent civilians, civilians uh, made up of men, women, and children alike were tortured with sadistic refinements. We have a, an inscription by Asher Paul bragging about one of his victories, and this is what he said. I built a pillar of hollow cylinder over against his city gate and I flayed, I skinned alive all the chiefs who had revolted. I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I crucified and impaled upon the pillar on stakes and others I bound to stakes around about the pillar. I cut the limbs off the officers and the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire And I took as many as living captives. From some, I cut off their noses, their ears, their tongues. Of many, I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to tree, to tree trunks round about the city. Their young men and maidens, I burned with fire. Twenty men I captured alive and I immured them. I enclosed them in the wall of a palace. And the rest of their warriors I sent out to the desert to be consumed by thirst. Do you understand why Jonah might not be excited to take this preaching invitation? These are the people God said go preach to. How would you feel if God told you to get up tomorrow morning And go tell the gospel in the open town square in North Korea or Iran or Iraq or Sudan. It's that exponentially multiplied. Yet in this call, we see, we see, we feel, we hear the missionary heart of our God. No one is too wicked to be beyond the reach of his desire for salvation. Can you remember that? For those people you know who you think God would never save that person, no one is beyond God's merciful reach. Now, Jonah was in a difficult situation. Think about it. He would be risking his life to go to Assyria to preach. And what if he succeeded and they were converted and now he has to bring that news back to Israel? He would not be a hero there either. So he picked a third option, a third plan. And in that, we find another recipient of God's mercy. First, we're going to see that these recipients are going to be the target of Assyria. We'll come back to that. Secondly, another group of unexpected recipients of God's mercy are disobedient saints. Disobedient saints. 
So God tells Jonah this call to go preach to Nineveh, the Assyrians, these horrifically wicked, treacherous, torturous people. But Jonah, stop, but Jonah, what's he going to do? What's his response? Rose up to flee to Tarshish. And don't miss this next phrase. And he fleed from the presence of the Lord. So go down, goes down to Joppa, modern day Jaffa, which is north, but it's down in the sense of from the altitude of Jerusalem. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it. He hid in the lower deck. We'll find out in a moment. To go with them to Tarshish. Why? From the presence of Yahweh, of the Lord. Here's the problem. Basic geography. Nineveh was east and north. Tarshish was west and south. This would be like telling someone, I want you to go to New York from Kansas City and they head toward Los Angeles. But don't miss, he was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. God says, go preach to the end of it. He says, I'm out of here. I'm getting away from this God. Maybe perhaps hidden in this this little passage is one of the most serious errors any human and especially any believer can make. And that is to forget or deny the omnipresence of God. He thought God was infinite power in an itty-bitty living space. In the ark, in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. Now, God's presence was no doubt in the temple. He had taught the people that for generations. That's where his presence was most manifest. And Jonah thought, if I can get away from Jerusalem, I, in effect, am getting away from God. It's the first question of this curious book. Why? Why disobey God and go the opposite direction? I think he was prejudiced. I think Jonah was a racist. Jonah didn't want the Assyrians saved and we'll find that out in chapter 4. But he also wanted to save his life. And knew the reputation of this wicked city and these wicked Assyrians. And he didn't like the Assyrians. So he didn't want to go there and give them any opportunity to repent. And he wanted to save his own neck. Now I'm sure this played out in Jonah's thinking. But in the background there's even something more basic, more fundamental going on. Jonah was possessive of God. He saw God as a convenient deity for Israel, and he misperceived God as a radical missionary, omniscient, omnipresent person. He didn't want to see the Assyrians saved. He wanted to see the Assyrians judged. It was the equivalent of saying, they will burn in hell and they deserve it. (laughs) Have you ever thought that? The Saddam Husseins or Adolf Hitlers or the wicked people of our world and history, people who you know alive today, do, do you have any thought of they are going to hell and they deserve it and I'm okay with that? That's not your God's heart. Because you were one of those people to him. So was I. Verse 4, the Lord hurled, he gets on the ship, and the Lord hurled a great wind 
on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea that the, so that the ship was about to break up. Jonah heard, Jonah disobeyed, God responded. The funny thing is that Jonah had this cockamamie idea, this speculation that God's sovereignty and power were somehow limited to the temple mount, and he could outrun God. But God proves he has not relinquished any control over nature or over his planet. He controls the weather. He controls the sea creatures. He controls wayward prophets. God was very much out of the Ark of the Covenant. Can we say it this way? God was out of the box in a big way. Notice the the force of this storm. The wind and the waves were literally so severe they're tearing the boat apart. It's coming to pieces. Seasoned sailors in verse 5 know this. Verse 5, then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God. These were experienced men of the sea and they knew they were in trouble. Impending death, by the way, has a way of impacting one's prayer life. These were experts in the Mediterranean Sea and yet they were seized with fear. They threw the cargo, which was on the ship, onto the sea. Whatever they were transporting wasn't as important as their lives. They threw out ballast. To lighten it, but Jonah, this is incredible. You want to see another miracle, a subtle miracle? Jonah had gone below to the hold of the ship, laid down and gone to sleep. I don't even know what to say. The boat's being ripped to shreds and he's snoozing. Maybe one of the most subtle miracles in the book. So, verse 6, the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Even the captain said, Nobody should be sleeping in this weather. Get up and call on your God. They were all praying to their own little deities. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Now, don't miss this. The ungodly pagans are praying, and it's the prophet of God who's sleeping. Reminds me of those Muslims who pray five times a day, which puts many Christians to shame. Now, Proverbs 16.3 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every roll of the dice, God doesn't say, oh, there's this number. He knows. That's important. They come up with the best plan possible. Verse 7, Each man said to his friend, his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Imagine that. And they said to him, Jonah, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What do you do for a living? What is your occupation? Why have you hitched a ride on this merchant ship? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? After the lot, they become really interested in this guy who's sleeping down below the deck. So he answers, verse 9. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew. I fear the Lord God who made... Isn't this interesting? The sea and the dry land, are those not the two most pressing things on their mind right now? The problem with the sea and the desire to be on dry land. And Jonah just happens to say, my God is over them both. Talk about your own theology indicting you. He reveals he's Jewish and that God is sovereign over the sea and the dry land, which had to sound pretty inviting at this moment. Then they became extremely frightened. And they said to them, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. How do they know that? This is incredible. Because Jonah told them, it says. They know that a God is causing this. And he, in this confession, just tells them who he is, where he's from. And by the way, I'm fleeing the God who, who controls the sea that's killing us. He becomes this blundering confessor. And the sailor's response is predictable. How could you do this? So they said to him, what should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. It was getting worse. Conditions were bad and they were getting 
acceleratingly worse. Jonah now becomes a source for a solution. He said to them, now this is Jonah's solution. Tell you what, pick me up and throw me into the sea. They've been throwing the ballast into the sea. Throw me into the sea and then the sea will become calm for you. Why? For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. His theology becomes crystal clear in a moment. But there's a problem, and we see it in verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Why didn't they just take Jonah's counsel and throw him into the ocean? Why didn't they do that? Because Jonah had just told them that he was the prophet of the God who was behind the storm. If he's your God and we deal with his prophet, what's God going to do to us? They thought things couldn't get any worse if they threw, things could rather get worse if they threw God's man overboard. Verse 14, so then they called on Jonah's God, on Yahweh, the Lord, and said, now they're praying to the God of Israel, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you please. Don't hold us accountable for what we're about to do. Just toss this guy in the rough sea. They wanted to avoid being guilty of murder before the holy God. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea Stopped. It's raging. I just see this in IMAX in my mind. Rain and waves and storm and boards falling off and crashing. They throw Jonah into the sea and instant ice. Smooth as ice. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. Why? Because they realized Yahweh does control the sea. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's very likely that these men were converted. You think they saw the true and living God in that moment? Back to Jonah. Imagine, imagine Jonah in this moment. Thrown overboard in the middle of a raging, angry storm. It instantly gets calm and he's looking at the at the hull, the bow of a boat with no ladder that's increasingly getting farther from him. The breathtaking coldness of the water. No life jacket. Nothing on which to float. No wetsuit to ward off the salty chill. And then something unexpected happens. As the storm stops, the sea calms, the sky clears, Jonah begins to contemplate what is it going to feel like and be like to drown. There's no way he can get back to the shore, he's going to drown. Then, bam. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. If that's not clear enough, I love the narrator. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish. By the way, he's there three days and three nights. Okay, let's ask the question that our kids always ask. Was it a fish or was it a whale? Can I just tell you that that question is built entirely on bad biology? It doesn't matter. Think about this. I think we think that if it perhaps was a whale, there was this giant VeggieTales-like chasm inside the stomach of a fish where he could walk around and pray and talk and it was a big kind of spacious waiting room. A whale's breathing system is completely separate from his digestive system. 
Most whales swim with their mouths open. Their stomachs are full of water, just like a fish's water is. It being a mammal doesn't do anything about the water in his stomach. Could have been a whale. Could have been a big shark. We don't know and we're not told. But the stomach cavity would have been similar in both. Just think of this. It's cramped and squeezing him, trying to digest him. There must have been a small air pocket placed by God in the stomach of this fish that supplied the prophet with life-sustaining oxygen. This was not a happy place. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the stomach of the fish. Now, as we read the content of Jonah's prayer, we find out more about the details of his situation. Interestingly, by the way, we discover that Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the ocean. He was drowning when the fish swallowed him. This is important. Listen, don't miss this. The fish was not God's judgment on Jonah. The fish was Jonah's salvation. It saved him. Verse 2, he said, I called, this is his prayer from the belly of the fish. He recalls what was happening moments or hours or a day before. I called out for my distress to the Lord. He answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol, and you heard my voice. How? By having him swallowed by a fish. That's how. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over the top of me. He's sinking. So I said, you have expelled me from your sight. He's below the surface of the water. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. He's drowning. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He's getting toward the bottom. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me. He's being entombed by the plants on the bottom of the ocean. But you have brought me up. My, brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. Would you please change your narrative from the fish being the bad guy? The fish is the good guy. <laughs> While I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He still sees God as being locationed back in Jerusalem, by the way. Those whom regard idol, vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Now that's significant. He's sacrificing with the voice of thanksgiving. I don't think he anticipates getting out of this to sacrifice on the temple mount again. That which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Basically he's saying, if, if I get out of this, I'll do what you asked me to do and go to Nineveh. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited. I love the, the language. It vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. You wonder if Jonah perceived for three days and three nights that the fish was on a straight beeline going east where he had run from. He was a disobedient saint and God demonstrated his mercy. He didn't give him what he deserved. Which leads us to a third unexpected recipient of God's mercy. Repentant sinners. Repentant sinners. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. See if this sounds familiar. <laughs> Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. This time, verse 3, Jonah doesn't go to tar towards Tarshish. He goes Toward Nineveh, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days walk. Jonah began to go through the city. One day's walk. I think that means he walked around the city for a day, probably giving this message in different places. And he cried out and said, 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was God's message. You've got 40 days to respond to me and to repent or you will be destroyed. The Ninevites understood being overthrown and destroyed. They were masters of this. Asher Natsar Paul, Tiglath Pileser, Sennacherib, the first, second, and third. Just read the history of these kings. And I love these three verbs that show up in verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. See that one, first verb. They called a fast, they got serious, and they put on sackcloth from the inside to the outside. They repented. Can I put it in our vernacular? They got saved. The greatest known revival in terms of numbers in human history is right there in your Bible, in your laps. This is it. Over a half a million people are converted in a moment. From the greatest to the least of them, oldest to the youngest, wealthiest to the poorest. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. The king is converted. It's incredible. And he issues a proclamation and said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, flock, taste a thing. He calls a national fast. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both... Man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, a sign of repentance, a sign that we were sorry for our sin and that we were treacherous and sinful. Let, and let men call on God earnestly that each man may turn from his, in the Hebrew, his own wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. These were a blood guilty people. And then he says, who knows? Listen to the humility here. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish, in parentheses, in 40 days. There's not even any presumption. He doesn't even know if God's going to withhold his judgment, but he still wants to be right with the living God. That's true repentance. Verse 10, what kind of God do we have? Look at our missionary God. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he didn't judge them. He didn't do it. I just find this incredible. And as a point of devotional practicality, don't ever give up praying for those who seem like they would never come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hearing the horrors of the Assyrians, no Israelite in his wildest imagination, much less the prophet of Israel, would have imagined that they would respond to Yahweh, the true and the living God. But they did. Sometimes I wonder how many people I have resisted sharing the gospel with who, if they came to Christ, might turn to me and say, why didn't you tell me sooner? Can I just tell you, I, I, I kind of wish that the book ended there. <laughs> I, I kind of wish that that was the end isn't that a great finish? Isn't that a great ending? It's a fantastic ending. You could make movies about this. Then we have chapter four. And we come to our fourth unexpected recipient of God's mercy. Unrepentant saints. Unrepentant saints. That's gonna be Jonah. Jonah. If anyone other than the Holy Spirit were writing this, the end of the book would have been entirely different or 
stopped at chapter 3. Everything is resolved. It's a perfect happy ending, but there's a lesson to be taught yet in chapter 4. I think it's the most important lesson in the book. And here it is. God's mercy is so great, it extends to unrepentant saints who are narrow-minded about the character of God. There's this massive revival. Half a million people are converted. Children are converted. But, verse 1, this revival greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. What? What? I'm thinking of all the times, thinking, that's good English. I've thought of all the times I've ever preached and a positive response from a message I've never gotten angry about. Just can't imagine that. It just shows how deep his hatred was toward the Assyrians and toward the Ninevites. He goes to God with his beef, with his complaint. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? I knew you'd do this. I had a sneaky suspicion you were going to save these people I don't want to see saved. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I, listen, I, if, if you learn anything from Jonah, the guy confesses his life away all the time. To God, to people, he is an open book. He just tells God what happened like God didn't know. I, in order to forestall this, this revival, I fled to Tarshish for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. It's just hilarious if, if it weren't so sad. I didn't go because I knew you would work. And I didn't like the fact that you would work on these people that I hate. The thought of me worshiping you with them was beyond my wildest imagination. This is actually insightful because as Jonah's praying, we, we can rewind the tape and see why he fled to Tarshish. He tells us why. Because he had a sneaky suspicion God would save the Assyrians. Okay, from verse 3 on, it gets weird. I'm going to tell you. This is going to get really odd. This is one of the proofs that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Because no human mind would resolve things this way. We just wouldn't. Verse 3. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. I would rather be dead than worship with the Assyrians. That's racist. That's prejudiced. That's hatred. So God pushes back, verse 4. Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city. And he pouts. No, I'm sorry. He sat down east of it. He makes a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Listen to what's going on. Jonah knows that God said, I'm not going to judge you, but he's hoping he might change his mind and do it anyway. I'm just going to sit here. I don't know if it was one day, four days, ten days. I'm going to wait till the 40 days are up and maybe they'll get it. And I'm going to have a a front row seat to watching the destruction of these horrific people. It's in the desert. If you know anything about Syria now or Assyria, this was in the scorching desert. We have every indication this must have been in the middle of the summer. He was trying to protect himself from the, the blistering rays of the sun, so he makes this shade, this makeshift shade that he can sit under. And listen to what God does. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. This is just incredible. Of all the desert where Jonah is sitting, a shade plant grows up right beside him and gives shade just to where he is. 
You ever wanted proof for the existence of God? Jonah more than had it. And Jonah was extremely happy about God's mercy in the plant. This is nice of you, God. It's front row seat to judgment. It's hot. You gave me some shade. It's hard not to imagine that he must have thought God was giving him some sort of wink and approval to sit there. I'm going to make it more comfortable for you. He was happy about, it, about the plant. He loved the plant. But God, verse 7, appointed a caterpillar, a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. There's lots of speculation. It's funny to watch theologians, Old Testament scholars, try to make sense of something that the Lord doesn't really make sense of for us. I saw one that said this caterpillar ate really fast and Jonah couldn't catch it. So he was, he, it, it ate really, you know, so, so quickly he couldn't smash it. Heard another say it was so big he couldn't kill it. Heard another say there were multiple caterpillar. Heard another say he just ate, ate the root and it instantly died. Who knows? Sometimes I wonder as scholars, I'm like, really? Sorry, I like commentaries. This bug comes, worm comes, kills the plant, and it withers. Verse 8, when the sun came up and appointed us, God appointed a scorching east wind. By the way, the prevailing wind was out of the west blowing toward the desert. Now this is coming out of the east from the desert. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. That's how hot he was. And by the way, he didn't run back to the city for relief. He'd rather die on the hill. He said, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? About my mercy? My not letting you have what you deserve? He said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished. You want to hear the sovereignty of God and salvation? Here is an excellent illustration. So, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 100 20,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. Now, that last verse is interesting. Scholars tell us that these are children. They just don't know enough to know their right from their left. They're too young. I saved kids, Jonah. I saved a nation, Jonah. And then you turn the page to say, where's chapter 6? Because it ends. What do we do with this book? I think the question is, what do we do with this God? What kind of God is the God of Israel who became flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yahweh didn't Send Jesus as much as Yahweh became Jesus. The Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. I can't trifurcate the Trinity, but I can tell you that the same God who is Jesus Christ is the same missionary God who wanted Ninevites to be saved. There's an obvious and striking contrast between the heart of Jonah who was embittered at God's forgiveness of sinners and Jesus who hung on a cross crucified by his enemies and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you see a contrast? The contrast is not between just two men. It's between God and a wicked prophet. 
As Jesus Christ hung dying on the cross, he asked God to forgive his torturous executioners. And Jonah, knowing torturous executioners lived in Nineveh, wanted them to experience God's judgment, and Christ offered them God's favor. Let me ask you this. When you watch the news, when you look at your neighbors, when you interact with your friends, is your mind inclined to be like the missionary God who longs to save sinners? Or do you think that you and God somehow became the dynamic duo and you're on the same team looking at the rest of the world from a high perched vantage point? Or do you forget that we too were in the eyes of God worse far worse than any Ninevite king ever was in his. Can I ask you another question? Are you prejudiced? Are you willing to worship with any tribe and tongue? Do you love God's mercy? We could take these four points. Are you lost in a rebellious state against God, like the Ninevites were, God's mercy is available. Are you a disobedient believer, aware of a point of obedience that God, you know God has called you to obey, but you're procrastinating it? There is mercy available for you. Are you in a good place spiritually, like the Assyrians were after they were saved and converted, and they loved God's mercy, and they prayed for God's, what God's kindness and his His relenting of judgment and they rejoiced that they weren't going to be judged for what they deserved. Do you love God's mercy? Or, or, or is there anything you're upset or angry about with God? Something he has done or is doing that you frankly just don't like. Find mercy today in Christ. Richard Sibbs, there is more, he said this, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Aren't you glad for that?